and go ahead and continue our discussion on uh, the culture of Living Hope Family Church. And what I wanted to talk about, and I know really we're preaching to the choir today, but uh, uh, that we're, we're not here to just fill a seat. We're not here to, to just warm a chair. I mean, what are we here for? The Bible says that we were created for good works. That we were created to go out and preach the gospel and win a, a world that is lost. Because the truth is, there's people in this world that have no hope. There's people in this world that, that are constantly looking for something. They're constantly reaching out and, and doing crazy stuff, trying to fill a void in their heart. And they absolutely have no hope, and they don't know where they're going, and they wonder, why are we even living? And, and some of them even put on a good face. Some of them even look like that everything is okay, and everything's all right. But they're settling for these temporary passings of sin, these temporary satisfactions that have no lasting uh, resolution. They have no lasting satisfaction and they meet these needs. You know, and the truth is we have a world of these people all around us. So what are we doing to reach them? What are we doing to touch their lives? You know, I saw a quote on Facebook not too long ago that says, if we say we want them to go to heaven, why do we treat them like they can go to hell? And that's one of those things that will make you think, it will make you wonder. We talk a good game when we're in church on a Sunday morning and, and we say, you know, there's this people out there that are lost, but what are we doing during the week? And I want you to know that at Living Hope Family Church, we're not a church that says one thing on Sunday and does another thing during the week. We believe that these people need life. They need a Savior. And we believe that. And we're going to continue as a church to reach out to them. And we're not a people that just ignores the calling of God on our lives, but at Living Home Family Church, we're a people who will be faithful to the calling of God in our lives. And in Colossians 1.24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. This is Paul speaking. And he says, And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. You know, and this is one of those verses that you read, and it's, it's, it's interesting what he says, because Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of the body, which is the church. And here's the weird part, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now here at Living Family Church, we teach you that Christ paid for everything. There was no lacking in Christ's afflictions. And if Jesus paid for everything, and that's what Paul taught as well, then what is he talking about? What, are these, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions? The one thing that Jesus didn't do when he died on the cross is he didn't preach the gospel to the world. And that's where we make up. That's what's lacking in Christ's afflictions was preaching, and that was left to us as his body, as his church, to reach the lost. That was lacking, and that's what Paul said. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. And we're going to be a church. That's who we are, living a family church, to be a church that does our, our share on behalf of, of the body, the church, to reach the lost. Because the angels aren't preaching the gospel. Jesus is not coming back to preach the gospel. He left that to us. And we're going to go ahead and take that responsibility seriously. And we're going to reach a lost and dying world. Amen. So the first verse we're going to look at today is the Great Commission. Uh, you know, we, we all know this verse. This is a verse that every person, person that's been a believer for any amount of time has heard this verse. And in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You know, this is Jesus saying that, that all authority, everything, every power, every, every authority has been given to me, not only in heaven, but on earth. This is, this is Jesus uh, asserting his deity and saying that all this authority has been given to me 
And there's nothing that can usurp that authority, and there's nothing that can deny that authority. And it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus is, has this authority of all heaven and all the earth, and he says, Now you go therefore and make disciples. Jesus is actually imparting his authority onto each and every one of us. You know, we're not called to make converts, but to make disciples. And he has given us the authority to do that. And we look at Jesus' life, and Jesus had the authority to teach in his life. You know, it, it says that when he teached, they were, the, the crowds were amazed because he was one who spoke with authority. And I want you to know that Jesus has given you that very same authority to teach in his name with all authority and the full backing of God behind you. And then we also find that, that Jesus had the authority to heal, and he did it many, many times in the New Testament, story after story that he touched people's lives and made them well. And I want you to know that you have the authority to heal by the power of the, of the blood of the Lamb, that you have the power to, to speak healing into people's lives. He's given you that authority. And then we see that Jesus had the power to cast out demons. And I want you to know that each one of us has that same power too. We have authority over demons. And we have authority to take a stand against them and tell them to get out of here. You have no right in this person's life. We have, we have that authority given to us in Jesus Christ. And finally, we see that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. And this was, a, this was a big deal to the Jews because when he forgave sins, they realized that he was claiming to be God because only God could forgive sins. Now, we don't have the authority to forgive sins in our own right. We don't have that. We are not God. But the truth is, we have the authority to proclaim forgiveness of sins. You know, we looked at a verse last week where it said that uh, any sins that you forgive having already been forgiven, we looked at was the better way to translate it, shall be forgiven. And any for sins that you have retained, having already been retained, shall be retained. Because we're just proclaiming what the Lord said in his, in his death. And if you receive Jesus, your, your sins are forgiven. And we can tell and proclaim a world of that, say that if you will accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then your sins are forgiven. And we can proclaim that over, our, over their lives. And the same, we can proclaim that if you don't have Jesus, then your sins are not forgiven. And we're not, we're not forgiving sins, we're not not forgiving sins, but we're just proclaiming what is already true in heaven and on earth. Amen? And then he says, we're teaching them to, or I'm sorry, uh, go there and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do, to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I behold you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The big thing here is go and make disciples. You know, we're not just called to make converts. We're not just called to go out and tell people about Jesus and walk away from them and leave them to figure it out on their own. You know, that is a, a surefire way for a new believer to fail, to be, to be retaken back by the enemy. It would be like showing somebody a video on swimming that's never swam before, and you show them this video, and, and they say, okay, I think I got it, I see how to do it, and throwing them out in the middle of the ocean. We wouldn't do that because we know that we have to walk with people as we begin to, to lead somebody to a new thing. We teach them and we walk with them. And Joseph, I know you can relate to this. It's much like being an apprentice. You know, and, and your line of work, they don't just uh, hand somebody a hammer and say, go at it, but they train them and they teach them. They, they don't just call them a carpenter and say, do you want to be one? Here you go. But they actually put them in a program to teach them how to, to walk as a carpenter, to teach how to do things the right way, in a safe way, in a structured manner. And that's what we're to do with new believers. We're supposed to take them under our wing and, and teach them about the ways of Christ. 
You know, and, it's, and that's our job, our responsibility is to help them walk and grow. And then the final thing that I, that I saw in this verse that, that I think to the disciples must have been a tough thing. Jesus says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, Jesus just died not too long ago. And the disciples, they were, they, they were distraught. They were destroyed. They, they believed in this man, and now he's dead. And they thought he was the Savior. They thought he was the Messiah, and now he's dead. But then Jesus returns. He, he appears to them, and he says, I'm not dead. I'm alive. And they're just reinvigorated. They're, they're just, uh, they understand that, that something is going on here, that God is at work, and that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah. But then he leaves again. He's getting ready to leave again. And I imagine that had to have been tough for the disciples. He, he died, he left, and he comes back, and I leave again. But Jesus is assuring them that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I want you to know that we can have that same comfort that Jesus is with us. When we go out on the streets to tell people about Jesus, when we go into the schools and our workplace, that Jesus is with us. And he's standing beside us, and we know that we're not alone. And he's giving us the strength to do what needs to be done. Amen? So we have this principle in the Bible of, of uh, as you saw, I, re, I titled this message, Reproduction, Multiplication, and the Great Commission. Because oftentimes in the Bible you'll see that physical realities imitate, or, or rather they show a template for spiritual realities. It's rather that physical realities imitate spiritual realities, not the other way around. And we find in Genesis 1, 11 through 13, it says, Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning and a third day. And then in Genesis 1, 24 through 25, it says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And we see a pattern here. Everything is after their kind. They bring forth fruit after their kind. Animals bring animals after their kind. There's this idea of, of reproduction in the earthly world that is imitating what should be happening in the spiritual world. Reproduction has always been the pan of God since day one. Even before sin came into this earth, um, we see that in, in this was the plan. You know, when we look at verse uh, Genesis 1.28, we see that it's the same with people as well. It says, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and every other living thing that moves on the earth. But be fruitful and multiply. And if you have a baby, does anybody ever, have you ever seen in this world somebody give birth to a pig or a donkey? I mean, it doesn't happen, not in this world. When, when we give birth, we reproduce after our own kind. And when you have a baby, you know, it looks like you. And as you raise it, you raise it. You, you reproduce in them your values and your standards. You reproduce for them a love of God. And you see that, that they grow up and they're raised like you and they're reproduced into little yous. I mean, I don't know how many times that people walk up to me and say, Blake is just like you. He looks just like you. Which is a shame because I, I really only wanted to give him my last name, but apparently he got my looks too. But, you know, he, he, he's just like me. And, and we see in his mannerisms... 
He's like me in a lot of ways as well because we reproduce in our own kind. And then Jesus points this out as well in Luke 6.44. It says, For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. You know, we reproduce what we are inside of us. And we're supposed to reproduce. Worship leaders will reproduce worship leaders. Pastors will reproduce pastors. We have praying people, people that are prayer warriors, reproduce others that pray. And Christians should be reproducing Christians. And I listened to Larry Neville's son once at, at the last conference we were at. He was preaching, and he gets up there and he says, you know what, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher. And it's because that's what my dad was. If my dad was a mechanic, I would have probably grown up to be a mechanic. If my dad was a plumber, I would have probably grown up to be a plumber. But that's not the case because my dad is a pastor and he reproduced in me the same values, the same viewpoints, and the same passion for the loss as him. Therefore, we see the pastors reproducing pastors. You know, and it's just a, it's really how we should be operating in this world, in this life. And then in 2 Timothy, verses 2-2, Paul writes to Timothy, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We are called to teach other men and women this gospel that we have so that they can teach others. You know, and and it says, entrust these to faithful men. You know, we are stewards of what God has given us. God has given us this incredible world, this incredible word, this incredible power to reach others and to to lead them to a better life, to lead them to hope and love and peace. God has given us this and entrusted us to it to do to others. And and we are stewards of that. And the question is, are we being good stewards? Are we being bad stewards? You know, if if you give something somebody to manage... You expect them to manage it in a good way, because if not, they would, you, know, you would fire them, you'd get rid of them. And I thank God that God doesn't just toss us out when things aren't going our way. But we are required to, to be good stewards of what he's given us. And then Paul says, entrust these. And I, I like the words there, entrust these. And in other scriptures, he tells Paul to, to guard what has been given you, because it is so easy. Uh, it's kind of like that progressive church commercial that came up where it was kind of like imitating the progressive uh, uh, insurance commercials, but it was for church. And they showed that, you know, pick what you want. Oh, I like this uh, prosperity and I, I like this, but yeah, I don't, you know, this whole thing about uh, not sinning, yeah, I don't want that part. I just want, you know, choose your own religion, if you will. And we have to be careful that, that what we're given, that what we've been entrusted with stays pure and remains to be just like Paul taught it, just like Jesus taught Paul that we don't corrupt it or make it our own or, or try to make it something that's, that's happier or better for us. And we're supposed to entrust it to people who will do the same and train people who will do the same. And then something I've, I've, I've noticed here is that he says that as we teach these to others, I remember when I used to work in, in restaurant, I was, I was a trainer. I was a, uh, as my job title, and I trained other people to cook. And, and something that I always noticed is that I never really learned what I was doing as well as I could until I began to teach other people the same thing. You, you begin to realize that as you teach other people, you become better at what you're doing because you have to answer the questions that they have and, and you have to, to know your stuff if you're going to teach somebody. So one thing I would encourage you, if you want to begin to know your Bible, but if you want to begin to know this stuff, begin to teach others. Begin to, to teach uh, your, we begin to teach our children and teach your coworkers and girls. Teach your classmates. If you want to learn this stuff, begin to teach them about the oracles of God. Begin to tell them that God loves them and has a plan and purpose for their life. 
begin to tell them that they have value more than they could ever imagine. And their value is not just what they look like or, or the friends that they have, but, but God considers them infinitely valuable and he loves them. You know, that's the kind of stuff that we can teach our friends and our family and coworkers. So then we'll go ahead and look to the next verse. And it's uh, some very common verses that we've heard all the time. But Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We begin to see more uh, wisdom in, in teaching others. You know, in the, this verse, this iron sharpening iron, is, uh, it brings to mind you know, a sword being sharpened by, by a steel or another piece of metal to sharpen a, a blade of a sword. And when you take iron and you rub it against iron, it begins to smooth out the dull bits. It begins to flake off the bad parts, and it creates a smooth, sharp edge. And the, the dull bits, the bad bits, the rusted bits get removed, and you have a, a, a sharpened sword. You have a sword that actually is able to do the purpose that it was called to, a sword that can act like a sword instead of a spoon. You know, if you have a, a sword that's not sharpened, what is it good for? It's not good to be a sword. And it's not good to be a spoon because it's not the right size. I mean, it's good for, for really nothing. But when it gets sharpened by a piece of iron, it can fulfill its purpose. And just like people, as we sharpen them, as they begin to learn that they can fulfill their purpose in God. And then a knife blade, when it is dull and you sharpen it with a steel, the edge of it, the edge of a knife blade, doesn't actually get banged up like you'd imagine in your head. It doesn't actually uh, get flat like this. But the, the edge of the knife blade folds over when you have a knife blade that's dull. And that's why it becomes dull, because the edge is now off to the side. And when you take a steel and you rub a steel on the knife blade, you're actually unfolding that blade to get the sharp edge back to where it's supposed to be. And we find that with people as well. Some people just need a steel. They just need a little bit to keep on the right track, that they're, they're doing the right things and they're growing, but we just need to invest a little bit of time in them and they're sharp again. And some people, we need to spend a lot more time, especially new believers, as they, as, you know, they need the stone. They don't just need a steel, but they actually need a knife-sharpening stone that can actually begin to remove those dull bits as we teach them that, hey, you're not a slave to sin anymore. When you thought that you had to do these things, you don't. That's us taking a stone and rubbing off the dull bits. And, and that's our responsibility to invest in those people's lives. And the truth is, if, if you're in a situation that's similar to that, if you know you need to grow, you need to get underneath somebody who will go ahead and begin to invest into your life and help you become the, the blade that you were meant to be, to help you become sharp in Christ and, and fulfill your purpose in God. Amen. And then in Proverbs 13.20, it says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You know, something else is, no matter if we want to or not, the people that we hang out with, the people that we spend our time with, begin to rub off on us. If you begin to hang out with people that are doing stupid stuff, that are doing stuff that is ungodly, you know, and we make excuses, oh, I'm, I'm going to witness to them. But the truth is, you will begin, they will begin to rub off on you if you're not very careful. They'll begin to impart on you. You know, here in Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise. It doesn't say that the wise men who walk with unwise men will remain wise. But it says that companions and fools will suffer harm. If you were wise and you begin to walk with unwise men, 
you will begin to you begin to walk with fools. It says you're going to suffer harm because of that. It actually affects who you are. You know, there are statistics that say that that your average income is within something like five or ten percent of of those who are your that you hang out with the most. You guys, everybody's income is in the same same rough area because you, you guys rub off on each other. You guys actually have an influence on your friends. And if you if you hang out with people that that are that are cussing and and doing wrong things and they're not putting God first and they're putting uh, bars first or parties first or or boys and girls or they're putting anything else first that'll rub off on you. So we have to be wise with who we're spending our time with. If we want to be strong men and women of God, we need to spend time with strong men and women of God. If we want to be better teachers, we need to spend time with people that are great teachers. If we want to be a better evangelist, then we need to spend time with people who are great evangelists. And we know that coming this Saturday, we're going to have the opportunity to do just that and, and walk around and tell people about, about this church and tell people about God. And, and when we have the opportunity, we'll speak to them and, and tell them about Jesus. And that's a great opportunity if you're not good at it. You know, as, we, as we're out there, we'll begin to see how to do this. And if you want to be a, a better prayer, you, you spend time in the prayer room in the mornings. You spend time listening to people pray. And that'll teach you how to pray. Amen? And then something that's so important for us to understand is that, that we are actually teaching and preaching the Word of God. The authority of what we're teaching is, is incontestable. There's nothing that can tell it it isn't so. This is the truth of God that we're dealing with. And in 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul says, For we are not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul's saying that what we speak is from God. These are his words. This is his truth, and it, and it can't be, be proven wrong. It can't be shown to be false because it is truth. And, you know, we're not selling snake oil. We're not peddling something that's not true. We're not taking our message, and we're not going to cut it down to make it sound better. You know, that's, uh, we see a lot of... Uh, of ministries do that. They want to, to reach a larger audience and they begin to take out the bits that offend people. They begin to take out the bits that are a little bit hard. You know, they begin to take out that stuff that, that so that way it'll be more open to people to come in, you know. We, we believe that the Bible, and the Bible's very clear about homosexuality, but there are churches out there who not only allow homosexuals in their church, but encourage it and support it. Now, we'll never say that a homosexual can't come into our church because God loves all sinners equally, and we'll love them just the same. But that doesn't mean that, that we can't love them at the same time not be okay with what they're doing. But we're not going to cut down the message. We're not going to change the message to make it feel better for somebody else. We're going to preach it as the Word says it. And Paul here is he's defending his ministry because in that day, and, and uh, when he's doing this in, in, in uh, Corinth, the, the teachers and the philosophers of the time they would actually do this for money. They made money from this, and they peddled, like Paul says, they peddled what they were preaching to make money off of it. And what they would often do is uh, tell everybody why their teaching is better than somebody else, kind of like an advertising campaign, campaign. This is why my teaching is better than Paul's. This is why my teaching is better than so-and-so's. And Paul says, I'm not doing that. I'm not here trying to prove to you this is true, prove to you that I'm better than everyone else. I don't have my bulletin board with why Christianity is better than all these other religions, but I'm coming to you as from God. And when we speak to people, we're coming as from God in the, in the sight of God. 
You know, and we, we see that this peddling, though, it happens so often in these big televangelist ministries. How many times has, has those, those men and women be, be shown to be frauds? You know, they're, they're, they're just doing it to make money. They're, they're, they're peddling the Word of God in a way that, that uh, is, bring, is dragging Christ's name through the mud. It's actually making Christians as a whole look bad. But our motivation behind this is not to make money. Our motivation is not to, to become famous preachers or to be, to be uh, known across the world. Our motivation is to reach the loss of this world. There's people out there that will go to hell if we don't tell them about Jesus. We have a, a ministry and a mission to reach people. And uh, that's what our motivation is, to give life. And I, I want you to know that we're not preaching uh, something that's not worth its, its weight, but we're preaching. We have a good product. We have the truth and the word of God. And we have salvation for those who will call on the name of the Lord. So what about if you feel like it's not my calling? You know, one thing that I'm really not is an evangelist. I've been called to preach and teach the word of God. I've been called to be a pastor. But in 2 Timothy 4, 5, it says, But you, Paul talking to Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You know, Timothy was not an evangelist either. Timothy was a pastor. That was the calling on his life. He was, he was leading uh, the church in Ephesus. He was a pastor there. And uh, he wasn't an evangelist. But Paul says, do the work of an evangelist. Just like we were listening to uh, Dr. Leon yesterday in the leadership meeting, he said, if the job needs to be done, do it, unless God tells you otherwise. You know, you're not, uh, you're not a, a missionary, but if there's missions that need to happen in your, in your area, unless God tells you no, do it. You're not an evangelist, be an evangelist. You don't, you don't uh, operate in the gift of helps or the gift of, uh, of hospitality. If there's no one else there to do it, and God's not telling you not to, do it. Let's be hospitable to people. Let's, let's preach to people. Let's tell them about Jesus. You know, and I know when you get into the work life, and, and especially for you girls when you begin to work, something used to drive me crazy when I was in work was when you needed help from somebody and they would say, oh, that's not my job. And I'm sure we've all, I know that we've all heard that, oh, it's not my job. But I need your help. I need you to do this. And, and sometimes when it's not your job, the work still needs to be done. And we still go ahead, you know, in your workplace, when you guys begin to work, you'll be a blessing to people if you never use that as an excuse. But you begin to, to honor people and help people in any way that you can. That'll make you a valuable employee. That'll make you a valuable friend and a valuable person to others. And truthfully, as Christians, we should be the best workers. We should always be filling every need in, in every way we can, not as unto men, not to make men happy, but as unto God. And then Timothy tells him, or Paul tells Timothy to be sober in all things. You know, this is something that we need to take serious. You know, this is not something that we can just pass on the wayside. Like I said earlier, there's, there's people that we were meant to touch, that if we don't be obedient to the calling of God, if we don't do the work of the evangelist, we'll go to hell. There's people that we were meant to touch that, that may not have the opportunity if we don't reach out to them. And, you know, this is, is such a... Uh, a hard thing to to understand that we have this responsibility you know and if if we go to them if we're obedient and we and we go to them and they don't accept Jesus that's we did we did what we were supposed to do we were obedient to the calling of God on our lives and one day they're going to have to answer for that and they're going to stand before Jesus and they're going to say but nobody told me but they can say ah yes but Allison she told you about the gospel on this day and you chose not to accept it you know, Allison would have been obedient, but this other person, it's not her responsibility anymore. 
But the truth is, one day we're going to stand in heaven. And, you know, I think that'll be a hard time when God says, look, these people didn't make it because you didn't do what you were told. That's going to be tough. We're going to have to answer to God, you know, what did we do with what we've been given to us? And then finally, he tells Timothy, endure hardship. Now, this is something as Americans that we don't quite get. We don't get hardship. So I was, I was reading this stuff. I was doing research for this, this sermon, and I, I found this, uh, this message this, this, uh, from... It says these following comments were taken from the registration sheet and comment cards returned to the staff of the Bridger, Montana wilderness area. So the wilderness area, this is an area that's, that's left untouched. You know, there's no roads, there's no, I mean, it's primarily left untouched to be a wilderness area. And people go out there and camp and, and they have a great time. But, but, you know, as Americans, you know, camping nowadays, I mean, we know in our family, right, camping is no longer camping. It's, it's standing in an RV with two 40-inch flat screens and, and DVD players that pop out underneath the, the bunk beds of each bunk bed, and there's a kitchen and bathrooms, and it's not really camping. But anyway, these people, these people have uh, comment cards to fill out after their stay in the wilderness area. And, you know, what, can, what can we do to do better? What can we do to make it easier? And these are some of the comments. One of them says, trails need to be wider so people can walk holding hands. The next one says, trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid, this, to rid the area of these pests. Now, you're laughing. Michelle's like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Please pave the trails so they can be plowed of snow during the winter. Chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get, get to wonderful views without having to hike to them. The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. <laughs> this, one's, this one's good. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can get reimbursed? <laughs> Reflectors need to be placed on trees every 50 feet so people can hike at night with flashlights. Escalators would, be, would help on steep uphill sections. A McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. The pla- <laughs> the pla- <laughs> this one's great. The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. <laughs> Well, duh. <laughs> There's no trails there. They're not marked. And then finally, there are too many rocks in the mountains. You know, Americans, we don't get hardship. When I was in, when I was in Africa, I saw the way the village's people lived. I mean, the, the chieftains, the kings, the head honchos of these villages, of these entire areas, would live in conditions they would make you want to run home and never go back there again. They live in, they have no running water. They have no plumbing. They have no, no uh, gas stoves to cook on. They have, they have nothing. I mean, they actually walk down to the river with containers on their head to get water and, and they, they clean their clothes in the, in the river and, and they, they use the restroom in holes in the ground and that's all they have. I mean, we look at their lives and I mean, that's, that's hardship and we have it so well in America that the poorest among us, the very poorest among us, have more than some of the richest people in some of these third world countries. But Paul told Timothy to endure hardship because Timothy had seen Paul go through some rough stuff and he walked with with Paul for quite a while and and even the stuff that he didn't see Timothy go through, I'm sure he heard stories as Paul told of of, uh, his travels. You know, he heard that, that Paul had been shipwrecked, that Paul had been... Uh, gotten 39 lashes more than once, that he had been stoned multiple times. I mean, 
for the sake of the gospel, I mean, Paul took a beating. I mean, as far as, as, as the outside looking in, the world looking in, you know, Paul was imprisoned. The gospel didn't do Paul any good. You know, we look at it, I mean, stoned, shipwrecked, beaten, living in prison for the majority of his Christian life. I mean, that doesn't seem like a good plan. It doesn't seem like a good idea. And the reason Paul suffered these things was actually for the very people that stoned him, the very people that imprisoned him because he loved them and he wanted to tell them about the reality of the gospel, that they could be made brand new and, and have eternal life. And Paul was willing to endure these things for the sake of the gospel and, and he tells Timothy to do the same thing, endure hardship. In 2 Timothy 1.8 it says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. One, we suffer according to the power of God. God will give us the strength to endure. And I don't believe that Paul wanted Timothy to suffer. He wasn't saying like this is a rite of passage. Not so much that He's not telling him to go out and hunt down suffering, go hunt down to, to endure correctly, but he's telling them that be willing to do so. You know, and we're a church that we're willing to suffer. We're willing to make sacrifices to, re to reach the lost, to reach the lost. That is the culture of our church because we care and we love people and we're willing to do what it takes to reach them. Amen? And finally, he says, fulfill your ministry. And fulfilling your ministry is, is something that's so easy in principle and sometimes so hard in practice. But in order to fulfill your ministry, all you need to do is be obedient. You be obedient to the word of God. You submit to the leadership placed over you. And as God speaks to you through them, you're obedient. That's how you fulfill your ministry. Amen. Next, we're going to look at church planting. In Titus 1.5, it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Church planting is a biblical principle. You know, Titus was one of the pastors that, that uh, Paul left in uh, the city of Crete, and he says, uh, you know, I want you to go out and train pastors. That's basically what he's saying here. Find men and appoint elders in, all the, in every city as I directed you, basically saying train pastors and plant churches. You know, and truthfully, we're going to reach more people for the gospel, planting many small churches. You know, a small church in America is anything less than, than 50 people, or 100 people, very small churches. Anything over 100 is considered a big church in America. But we're going to reach more people with multiple small churches spread apart, apart across the nations and across the cities and, and regions than we are with one huge megachurch. And that's the plan of, 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 the, of the Bible. That's how Paul did it. Paul didn't create one huge mega church in Jerusalem that, that had campuses everywhere, but he, he created many churches in every city that he went to. He planted churches, and then he taught those same pastors to plant other churches. It says, in every city as, as, I, as I direct you. And this is, increases the reach. It increases our reach. and increases the, the impact that we can have on the lives around us. Because we look at, as we were planted at a Living Hope Family Church in Tucson, Living Hope Family Church in Tucson will not and cannot have the same impact in Marana that we do. Because we are actually stationed here. This is our, our area of responsibility. But how many of you know that, that they are reaching Marana through us? They sent us out. So their sphere of influence, their reach was greatly enlarged by sending us out. You know, in Praise Chapel, which is a church planting movement, a fellowship of churches that we belong to, you know, they say that planting a church is, is like having a child. 
you know, we, we often think that, that we're not ready to do these things. And I know as we were called to be sent out, uh, Michelle and I, we, we didn't feel ready. Even now, sometimes we don't feel ready. But we did it because we trust God to work through us. And it's like having a, a baby. When you, when you have your first child, you're not ready. Even if you read all the books, and if you, you know, some people think, oh, we want to read all the books, and we want to make this much income, and we want to do this and this and this. And they do all these things to prepare, and they realize that they're still not ready. And that's, that's the way we are with churches, is, as we just, we're going to plant churches, even though sometimes we feel not ready, and, and, and there's not really a, a, a manual for it. Just like there's not a manual for, for children that, that when they're birthed, out comes a, you know, one of the little zip ties with a manual attached to their foot. And the same thing, we have the, the Word of God to instruct us and in how to teach people and, and raise people up. But as far as how to, how to do this as an individual thing, there's no, there's no book for it. We just go out there in faith and trust God to work through us to reach a city that is lost because that is His will and that is His plan and purpose for our lives. And then in 1 Timothy three fourteen through 15, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. You know, the church of the living God is the, the pillar and support of the truth. Not in the sense that we hold up the truth by what we are, but that we are supporting the truth to be spread throughout the world. That we are the ones that that the church's responsibility is to reach people, to minister to people. That's why we're the pillar and support of the truth in their lives. You know, the church is where people come to be loved. Church is where people come to feel safe and, and find peace in God. And church is where, where people come to be equipped. You know, and, and this pillar reference that Paul is making, Timothy would have understood it well because in Ephesus was the great temple of Diana, which was a great temple to one of the pagan deities in the city of Ephesus. And it had 127 pillars that held up this building. So in, in Greek times, they're no stranger to a pillar and, and what a pillar accomplishes. A pillar is what holds up the roof of the building. It's what holds the building up. And you remember with Samson, when he was uh, taken by the Philistines and he was in that great Colosseum, and he says, Lord, use me one more time. What he does is he, he places his hands on two pillars and he tears the pillars down and the entire building collapses in. You know, the, the church is like that for the truth of God. Not that we uphold the truth, but that we are able to distribute the truth in the, of the word of God. And if the churches are torn down, then it's going to be much more difficult for people to be reached by the gospel. So the church is very, very important in preaching and teaching the gospel to the lost. And Mary Lefkowitz, she was a, a pre professor at Wellesley College, and she said this, the notion that there are many truths might seem well suited to a diverse society, but when everyone is free to define truth as he or she prefers, as at present, the result is an intellectual and moral shouting match in which the people with the loudest voices are most likely to be heard. Does that sound like something that we see today? We have small minorities of people yelling the loudest, and that is becoming what's the truth in our society. We have a small mi minority of, of homosexuals saying, no, this is right, this is what we should be allowed to do, so it influences our society, and they call, claim that to be truth. You know, we have uh, 
just all these different things. We have people that are, that are yelling out that, no, it's a woman's right to have an abortion. It's her body, and she can do what she wants. And a small minority of, of women believe this, but they're louder than everyone else who believes this differently. So that gets pushed into legislation. That gets, that's the truth that is, like the professor said, the people with the loudest voices are most likely to be heard. Now, men and, uh, women who are having an abortion... You know, thank God that, that there's still hope for them. There's still love for them. God doesn't love them any less for the decisions that they make. And they can be forgiven and redeemed and restored. Same with, with homosexuality. They can be forgiven and redeemed and restored. And God loves them the same and we love them the same. We'll never change how we, we treat somebody based on what they do because with the redemptive power of Christ, that is all we know in them. Paul says that, that I know nothing of you except for Christ in you, and that's how we choose to see the world as well. And the people that don't have Christ in them, we're going to love them because God loved them and because he wants them to have Jesus Christ. And as a church, that's what we believe, and that's what we're going to continue to do. You know, when people ask, do you, do you allow these people in your church to do these things? And, you know, we, have, we allow all manner of sinners in our church because we want to express to them the love of Christ. And I remember when I was growing up and I got saved at a really young age. And, and uh, you know, I, I tell people often in my testimony, I had just enough faith to be saved. And most of the time, not even that. I believed in Jesus, but I definitely didn't follow him. I didn't, I didn't act like I believed in him. And, uh, but I do remember reading that, that salvation was a gift and you didn't have to do anything to earn it. And I remember I thought I was so clever that, oh, I don't have to go to church because salvation is a gift. I don't have to do this and this and this because it's a gift and, and God gives it to me. And, and technically, that is true. Salvation is a gift that is received by faith. The problem we run into when we don't, when we don't uh, let Christ live through us, we don't live the life of Jesus through us and we want to do our own thing is that we so easily give that gift back. It's like the perfect illustration of a, of a Christian in the church that I, I find is so incredible is, is the coal that in a fire will burn bright for a very, very long time. It burns hot and never goes out. But if you take that single coal and you move it just five feet from the fire, it'll burn out so quickly. And that's what happens with us. You know, we, you know I thought I was clever. I, I don't attend church, and, uh, but it's a gift can still be saved, which is true, technically. But the problem was, as I, as I came out of the fire, as I was moved away from the fire, that my coal burnt out, and I, I ended up giving that gift back. I didn't, I didn't hold on to that salvation. I began to stop believing in God because as I hung out with other people, like we talked about earlier, they began to rub off on me, and I moved farther and farther away from God, and I gave that gift back. So the, tr the church is so important in a believer's lives and helping them grow and be built up and strengthened. And finally, by planting churches, we're going to increase our sphere of influence. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12 through 15, it says, For we, will not be, we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. What Paul's saying is that, a lot of, this is themselves a lot of time, right? <laughs> so it's confusing, but what, what Paul says, what he's saying there is, there's these people out there that compare themselves to others. They compare themselves to other, other ministries, these other teachers, and, and they're, they're building themselves up like, well, he did this, but I did this. He did this in a good way, but I did this. And they're comparing themselves to themselves, what Paul's saying, to each other, saying that I'm better than them because I did this. No, I'm better than him because I did this. But Paul says, we will not boast beyond our measure. 
but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as to you. He says we're not going to boast in what these other men do and we're not going to compare ourselves to what these other people have done. We're going to boast within our measure and our measure is the sphere which God apportioned to us to reach even as far as you. Paul was saying that I was called to the Gentile. You know, Peter was called as an apostle to the Jews. And Paul was called as an apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, this is my sphere. My sphere also included you as a Gentile here in, in the Corinthian church. And he says, I will not boast in what other men have done, but I will boast in what God has given me to do. And he says, for we are not overextending ourselves as we did not as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come, even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors. He wasn't boasting in what other men had done, but in what he had done in Christ. He says, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. Paul's saying that, that we're going to live up, we're going to measure ourselves according to what God has given us. And that's how we should measure ourselves we are given a sphere of influence, and right now our sphere of influence is Marana. And we're not going to measure ourselves to churches in Tucson by how big they are or how well they're doing. We're going to measure ourselves to what God has given us. God has given us this city, and we're going to reach this city, and that's what we'll measure ourselves by. And when we boast in the people that we've reached, we're not boasting in ourselves and how good we are, but in what God has done in us. And then he says, within our sphere, enlarged even more by you. And the great thing is, as we reach more and more people, our sphere of influence will be enlarged. We will be, have a greater reach. We'll be able to reach more people. And the truth is, and we don't really know it, but Joseph, you can reach people that I can't reach. The same for you, Michelle, and you girls. When you're at, at your schools, you can, you can reach people that, that I can't reach or that, that Michelle can't reach or that Joseph can't reach. But as you reach these people, our sphere of influence is enlarged as you reach out and they reach out. And that's how we're going to win the world is by continuing to reach people and enlarging our sphere of influence by the power of God. So next we're going to look at our template in the Bible. Jesus was the, the perfect template of, of training people up and sending them out to reach the world for himself. In Matthew 4, 18 through 22, it says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their and their father, and followed them. When Jesus began his public ministry, the first thing that he did was begin to search out men that he could impart into, that he could invest into. You know, and, and he looks out in the sea and he sees these, these guys out there and he says, come in, I'm going to teach you to be fishers of men. Follow me. And these men, they left a really good job. Fishing at the time was, was actually, they were made more money than most at the time. It was an incredibly lucrative uh, field at that time. And, and they left that because they saw something in Jesus. They saw hope and peace and, and love and security. And they decided to follow Jesus. And Jesus said that uh, I'm going to invest into you. I'm going to teach you to do the same thing that I do. Jesus began to reproduce immediately into other men. 
And we see that, that Jesus, he used to preach to the multitude. He cared about the multitude. And he, he fed them and he, and he healed them and he spoke to them. But we see a huge difference in that when he spoke to the multitude, he spoke to them in parables. But he pulled disciples aside afterwards and he invested into the disciples. He spoke in parables to the multitude, but he pulled the disciples aside and began to explain to them what these, these parables meant. He actually invested more time and energy into this group of 12 around him so that they could be reproduced and do the same thing he was doing. He taught them these parables so they could in, in turn preach to the multitudes and tell them these parables, but also teach others to do the same thing. So for a little more clarity on what happened there, though, in John 1, 40-42, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. So what actually happened was is Jesus goes up and he sees Andrew. And this is Simon Peter's brother. And Jesus begins to speak to Andrew, and Jesus recruits Andrew and says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And then immediately we see the plan in action. We, we see that Jesus reproduced in Andrew, and immediately Andrew goes to his brother and begins to reproduce into his brother and says, Hey, we have found the Messiah. And then he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. You know, something that's so... Uh, great to see in the same scripture is that when Peter came to the, to the Lord, he was renamed. And just like us, our old man is taken away and thrown away. We are given a new name. We are given a new life. You know, and, and it happened with Paul and it happened with Peter. You know, the, it was Simon, now he's Peter. It was Saul, now he's Paul. And the same thing with us. When we accept Jesus into our lives and allow him to reproduce in us, our old life is taken away. Now, we don't physically get new names. It's not our tradition, but our old life is done and dead. It's taken away, and we are made brand new. We are a brand new person in Christ. Amen? And then in Matthew 10.1, we see that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So Jesus, he, he finds the men, he begins to invest in them, he trains them, and then immediately they begin to do what he did. He says, he sends them out and gives them this authority, his authority. And we talked about his authority earlier. And he gives that to his disciples, and they go out and do the same thing. And we see this, this template of, of reproduction and multiplication in Jesus and his disciples. And he says he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Basically, they went out and did the exact same things Jesus did. They were a reproduction of him and were able to go out and begin to reach the lost. And that's what our job is as well, is to reach the world around us. And that's how we're going to do it as a church. That is our vision, is to, to grow numerically so that for we can help more people grow spiritually. And we can plant churches, which will then in turn help more people grow spiritually and to do the same thing. That is our vision, is to, to reproduce constantly to reach more people for, for Jesus. And in Matthew 9, 36 through 38, 
Jesus, this is speaking of Jesus, it says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. You know, there's a world out there with people who are distressed. There's people out there who have no hope. They've, they, they've lost their job and they're in abusive relationships and, and there's people that are sick in their body and they have all these terrible things going on and, and they're distressed and they're dispirited and they have no hope. They have no one to turn to and their, their faith is in stuff like their job and they lose their job and the world is destroyed and their faith is in people like the doctors and the doctors can't heal their cancer and their, their lives are destroyed and their faith is in people like their spouses who fail them and cheat on them and abuse them and their hope is destroyed but we have a hope we have treasure in earthen vessels to give to these people because for the people to lose their job when, when their faces, faith is in their job and they lose it their lives are, their hope is destroyed but, but if your hope is in Jesus who says I'll never leave you or forsake you and that I will always provide for you just like the, the birds who do not uh, gather and do not sow and, and the, the grass in the field it grows and it's taken care of you are more valuable to God than that, and you will always have an abundance. I'll always take care of you. And just like the, the, uh, the person that has the sickness in their body, when they trust in the doctors and the doctors fail, their lives are destroyed. But if they trust in Jesus, the Jesus that we can tell them about, and their faith is in them when they find their sickness in their body, they know that they can trust Jesus. And then their hope is in Him, and, and they have peace and joy in that. And they're not thankful for their sickness, but in spite of their sickness, they are thankful. And people that are in abusive relationships with spouses who abuse them and beat them and let them down, you know, when their hope is in their spouse or their boyfriend and they're doing those things, then, then the world is destroyed when that happens. But if they have their faith in Jesus, He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll low. He says, low. We read it earlier. I'm with you even to the end of the age. They have someone they can put their faith in that's never going to let them down. Jesus is the only person that will never let you down. Your parents will let you down. Your friends will let you down. Your spouse will let you down. But Jesus will never let you down. Amen? And then He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Now, this is a strange one to me because sometimes I feel like when you watch the news or you've talked to a few people, there's just so many people that want nothing to do with God. And we're like, the harvest is plentiful. It seems like the harvest is very, very few. But the truth is that there's people out there that, that are hungry for a Savior. They're hungry for this hope that we have. Some don't even realize it. But many do, but they've had no one tell them. And the harvest is plentiful. We have, you know, when we were reading statistically, Tucson is the seventh most unchurched city in the, in the state, in the country. And I would imagine that Miranda is right up there with it. And it's this area that we're trying to reach. We have such an opportunity. The harvest is plentiful. The problem is, it's the workers are few. You know, and we often think that God lacks in nothing. He can do all things. But the Bible says he lacks workers. And it says, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So we need to pray for workers. We need to pray for men and women to be raised up who are willing to go out and, and reach a lost world for Jesus. And as we pray for them, you might even find that you're the answer to your own prayer. Amen? And then in Acts 1.8, we looked at this verse last week, but it's, it's important to this message as well. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witness, both in Jerusalem and in, in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And we talked about that Jerusalem is our city. It's, it's Morana. 
and then Judea and Samaria is our region, which would be like uh, Arizona or even the United States, and even to the remotest part of the earth will be the rest of the world. And this isn't a, a, a gentle suggestion. It says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and even the remotest part of the earth. That is our calling, our responsibility to be a witness. And what is a witness? A witness is, is simply, like if you look at a witness in a court of law, a witness is just somebody who provides evidence for something. And we are Jesus' witness. We're his evidence of who he is, of his love, his compassion, his kindness of how he poured out everything for us. We are his witnesses to tell the world and provide evidence of who he is. You know, and the truth is we're not responsible for all of these all at once. But each of us have our own sphere of influence. And you're responsible to reach those people that you can influence. And we may not personally reach the rem- all the remotest parts of the earth, but we can have an influence by sending out missionaries or 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 just even reaching the people around us, we can have that influence. And that is our sphere of influence. And, and as a church, we are, going to be, we are going to be responsible to reach those in our sphere of influence. And the last one I want to look at is Romans 10, 11 through 15. It says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. It's so good to know that God doesn't have a distinction between people. You know, in this time they were looking at Jews and Greeks, but in our, our society today, you know, we look at the rich and the poor. Maybe the different races, black, white, Asian, Hispanic. The, those who are married and unmarried. Those who are high class and low class. But God's not a respecter of persons. There's nothing that you do that will disqualify you from the love of God other than not believing in His Son. And there's nothing that you can do that can make you more qualified than anybody else. God has no distinction between Jew and Greek, rich, poor, sick, healthy, married, unmarried. And it says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You know, the gospel is good news to the people in the world around us. They don't realize, some of them don't even realize they need it. Some people are searching desperately to fill that hole in their heart. And they're trying to fill it with the passing pleasures of sin, with, with drugs and sex and alcohol, and, and sometimes with, with stuff that doesn't even necessarily seem bad, but they're trying to fill it with TV or, or their job or, or everything. They're trying to fill this hole in their heart, and they can't figure out why. And they're longing for a Savior. They're longing for God. The only thing that will give them satisfaction and peace is God. And we have that to offer to them. And it's our responsibility to offer to them. And as a church, that's what we're going to do. And I'm thankful that as we do so, that not only will we be a blessing to those that we reach, not only will we be a blessing to those that we can tell about Jesus who can make them whole, but we'll also be blessed in return. Amen.